This morning's scripture is from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When I say the word righteous, wonder what comes to mind for you. What neural pathways fire in your brain when I say that word righteous? So part of me is, in my profession, I'm trained, so I have kind of th technical things I might think of it, but I'm also a child of the 70s, so I can't help it that whenever I hear the word righteous, I think of like surfers saying that was righteous man, or this meatloaf is righteous, or something like that. But if we were to put you into small groups right now and ask you to sort of come up with what the Bible says about righteousness, I bet most of us would come up with something like holy, pure, someone who does what's right in God's eyes, someone who's just, someone who does God's will. Uh, maybe if you're inclined to give a little bit more technical definition, you might say right standing with God would be righteousness or something like that. And that all makes sense. I think the, the Bible has all of those ideas. When it talks about really a very complex and big idea of righteousness. Now, the reason I bring that up is because we're going to see uh, as we walk through Matthew that this is a word that Matthew actually cares a lot about. And in fact, it's in our text. You didn't see it maybe because it's translated in most of our translation as something like just in verse 19, but it's right here at the beginning. And when you kind of pull on that thread in Matthew, we're going to see over the next several months that it comes up quite a bit. So here we are, in fact, at the beginning, or the second week anyways, of uh, you know, serve a, a, a series that we're going to be walking through Matthew 1 to 7, and I cannot tell you how excited I am about this. I mean, this is, uh, I've been able to have the opportunity to spend quite a few years thinking about Matthew, and every time I open Matthew, I am more amazed. It's not just the theme of righteousness and other things, but just the beauty and riches that are before us. And last week, Pastor Kevin kicked off our series in Matthew uh, beautifully with going through the genealogy. And how about the boldness of having the whole genealogy read? If you were here last week, that was pretty amazing. And now we're continuing on in what is really the very first story in Matthew and really the first story of the New Testament that we get to start with, and it's very exciting. And before we get to that story that we just heard read, I just want to say make two quick observations about the Gospel of Matthew to kind of set the tone for what we're about to see. The first thing to note about Matthew is that it is a biography. 
That is, it's one of the four interlocked biographies that make up most of the New Testament. And just like today, we write biographies. In the ancient world, they wrote biographies so that you would learn about somebody who's really important to learn from what they said and did. And from a Christian perspective, the reason we start with these four biographies of Jesus is because we think he is the most important person, the God-man, God himself in the flesh, to learn from what he said and did. So that's the first thing, and that leads to the second observation before we get to our story, and that is that our first story is really part of five stories right at the beginning of Matthew that are, that are really the origin story of the biography. That is, they tell us about his parents and where he was from and where he grew up and some traumatic issues that went on. So it's like the original kind of X-Men's origin story or something, right? If you kind of turn the, the X-Men and turn it this way, it's like Crossman. Like, if I could have copyrighted that, that would have been awesome. Uh, but it's like this, the first several chapters give us the, the layout, who is this person that we're about to tell you about in this origin story? And there's something very important that happens in all five of these origin stories right at the beginning, and that's, you can see it in verse 22, and we'll come back to it. It's that in every time, in every one of these stories, Matthew says that the things he's about to tell us are actually the fulfillment, is the use he wor word he uses, for something that happened in the Old Testament. That is, what he means is that everything that God has been doing in the past from creation, from creation to Abraham, to Moses, to the temple, to David, the prophets, the exile, Matthew's going to argue that everything that God has done in the past has now come to its ultimate meaning, its ultimate head, its ultimate explanation in Jesus the Christ. And so he starts his book by laying out these five stories and pointing this out at each time. We're going to see this over the next several weeks. So that's just a couple of observations. Now let's turn to the first story of the New Testament that God gives us in 1, 18 to 25. And there are actually two books, of course, that give us some of these origin stories that a lot of times we, we conflate them together, we confuse them. So you've got Luke, who tells us those stories that we read at Christmas time about the shepherds and the angels and Jesus being born in a feeding trough or laid there in a feeding trough, etc. Matthew actually tells us a different set of stories, and our story today takes place probably about seven or eight months before Jesus is born when we learn about how Jesus came into being. And he starts right off in verse 18. You can see it there. It says, When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to see over the next several months of going through Matthew is that Matthew actually doesn't really care that much about telling a very dramatic story. He just gets it right out there. Manuscript drop. He just tells you exactly what happens there. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. She, came, she was found with a child. It was by the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't really kind of develop the tension of the story. But if you pause for a second on that verse, you can imagine this was a very intense and stressful situation. In this day, the custom was that marriages were arranged beforehand. So you have a contractual agreement between a man desiring to be married to a, to a young woman, and so he has a contractual relationship with the young woman's father. And there was a time period before they came together during which the contract, contractual obligations were fulfilled, and then finally the young woman would move in uh, to, the, to the man's house and cohabitation and consummation of the marriage. During that time, you could still call them husband and wife in a sense, and so if that contractual obligation got broken, you could actually still call it a divorce. So it's kind of like our engagement, but a little bit more intense, a little bit higher commitment. 
Now, the tension, of course, of our story is that during this betrothal period, before the consummation of the marriage, Mary is found to be pregnant. We don't know how far along in the pregnancy she was when this information got out. We probably wasn't widespread knowledge, but somehow Joseph came aware of it, and he decides naturally that he is going to break off this engagement. So he's going to divorce her and send her away in hopes probably that no one had really noticed yet, and it was early on enough. So it is a mess. The whole thing is a huge mess. Imagine how stressful this was and how confusing and how painful the whole thing was and embarrassing as well. And then look what happens in verse 19. So Mary is in a particularly horrible situation, even more than Joseph. You know, she has no rights. She's heading towards shame and ostracism and possibly even death by stoning if the extremists get a hold of her. She is in a horrible situation. And in the midst of this mess, Joseph is a good guy. And you have to notice what's remarkable is that he doesn't know what's happened at this point, right? Matthew shows us that he, he didn't know until later in the next verses. We'll see he and Mary would not have been hanging out. You know, men and women didn't interact socially in that way. And so as far as he knows, he has been completely wronged. But rather than denounce her and shame her, Joseph does something amazing. He plans to end their betrothal and send Mary away quietly, it says, so that she will not experience the disgrace and the dishonor of her situation. Again, imagine. Imagine the mixture of emotions that everybody's feeling in this very stressful and confusing situation. Matthew, you know, Matthew doesn't tell us what Joseph knew, probably nothing. He probably assumed that, do you remember Luke tells us that Mary had spent three months with her cousin in another area, her cousin Elizabeth, and so Joseph probably just assumes it happened during at that time. All that Matthew shows us is that in, without knowing what had happened, Joseph shows up and decides to show mercy. Then what happens in 20 and 21 changes everything. Look there. An angel probably Gabriel, Matthew doesn't tell us, but probably the same angel that visited Mary and Zechariah and Luke, appears to Joseph in a dream. And whenever an angel appears in the Bible, it's not very common, whenever an angel appears and speaks, it is a sign that God is saying something important and about to do something new and important. And this is exactly what happens. The angel appears to Joseph in a dream and gives an explanation and a command and a revelation. The explanation was what Mary already knew, but Joseph didn't, namely that her pregnancy was not actually the result of sin and unfaithfulness on Mary's part, but in fact it was begotten, the same word that is all through the first 17 verses, begotten by the Holy Spirit. The command that the angel gives to Joseph is not to fear. And that's what angels always say when they show up and everybody's always afraid. But in this case, it's really specific. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, Joseph. Why would he be afraid to do that? Because he would be bringing great shame and dishonor on himself and his own family to marry this already pregnant woman who is, from the world's eyes, clearly uh, ungodly and unfaithful. And so the angel says, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. 
And then the revelation is what is in verse 21. Mary's going to give birth to a boy. You're going to name him Jesus. That is the Greek form of Joshua. The name Jesus and Joshua are the same, or Yeshua in Hebrew from the Old Testament. Why? Because this name, Joshua, Jesus, is an abbreviation for Yahweh saves. God saves. Just like in the Exodus with Moses and Joshua, the angel says Jesus is going to rescue his people from the consequences of their sins. So quite a dream, quite a turn of events. And then skip ahead, if you look at just in the short story, how the story ends in verses 24 and 25. Again, Matthew, he doesn't tell much drama. He just tells what happened. Joseph woke up. He did what the angel told him. He married her, brought her into his home. They didn't consummate the marriage. He protected her. The pregnancy came to an end with the son. End of story. They named him Jesus, right? Again, Matthew, he doesn't unpack the stories very much. He just tells you. He doesn't have time to tell us all that. So it's a very short story and very shocking. The question to always ask is, why is this story here? What is God trying to say by putting this story here? And especially thinking about it as the very first story of the New Testament. Well, whenever we read the stories in the Bible, and we'll talk particularly here about in the Gospels, it's very helpful to recognize that the stories of the Bible always first tell us something about God, and then secondly, they tell us something about us. Always first, they tell us something about who God is, and particularly in the Gospels, who God is for us in Jesus. And then they also invite us to think about ourselves and grow in knowledge of ourselves. So let me say something about both of these aspects of this story. First, what does this story tell us about God? Well, we've already mentioned the first thing is what the angel himself said, that God is showing up in Jesus, and you're going to name him that, because he is God incarnate coming to rescue, to save God's people from the consequences of our sins. And we cannot miss that. It's right there in the very first story of the New Testament. And if you, if you miss it somehow, you could just keep reading along in Matthew. And this is how the story ends. The, the climactic point of the story is that Jesus is arrested and beaten and tried and crucified and, and killed and then raised from the dead. And the night before all that happens, he explicitly says in chapter 26 that all of this is happening his body is broken and his blood is spilled for the forgiveness of sins. So it's the same theme at the beginning and the end. So there's no doubt that this has something to do with the forgiveness of sins and the rest of the New Testament speaks the same way, doesn't it? But to understand a little bit more of what God is saying about himself and about Jesus, we have to look at the verses I haven't said anything about yet, and that's verses 22 and 23. Remember I mentioned at the beginning that Matthew is going to say that this story somehow fulfills what God has done. So let's look at those verses again. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in this, Matthew is quoting Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and saying it's fulfilled. And the, the first thing to notice here is that whatever Matthew means by fulfilled doesn't mean a one-for-one -one exact prediction of what's going to happen from Isaiah into Jesus' day. 
but instead something more like an analogy or a, an overlapping interconnection because he ties together the verse from Isaiah with the story about Jesus. The connection clearly is a virgin bearing a son, but then notice the name of Emmanuel is different than the name of Jesus, right? So if Matthew thinks of this as just a prediction, he did a really bad job. Like he should have come up with a better verse, right? Or something, he should have quoted something from Joshua or something, right? So the point is not that this thing is, a, is going to be exactly predicted in the same way. There is a connection between the virgin bearing a son, but instead how the New Testament thinks about being a fulfillment of the Old Testament is that the things are brought together and brought into their fullness in Jesus. And then there's something new we learn by paying attention to how those verses come together. And this is what I mean. When you and I think about the idea, you see, of Jesus saving us from our sins, we've mostly been taught to think of that in a kind of very legal courtroom kind of situation, right? So the idea of being saved from our sins, we usually think of like we're guilty legally before God, and then God says because of Jesus, he declares that we're not guilty, a very legal kind of courtroom situation. And that's certainly true and certainly biblical. That's not what exactly is behind the idea here and the idea of saving. That's a little different situation. What's being described with Jesus as saving us is the idea like Joshua and Moses in the Exodus, being saved or rescued from our sins means being delivered from bondage and slavery and oppression and burdens that our sins, the sin of the world, and our own sins have brought upon us. It's like, it's like we've been kidnapped and then the special ops team breaks in and rescues us, or like we've been captured as slaves and someone busts in and breaks our bonds and brings us into freedom. That's the idea of save. So to talk about Jesus saving us, like Moses and Joshua were agents of that, Jesus saves people by delivering them out of the bondage that they're in and bringing them into life and freedom. And the main idea here is the Exodus, of course, from the Old Testament. This is the image that then the rest of the Bible uses to understand our own lives, that we too are in bondage and slavery, and then God rescues us or he saves us. That's what it means for Jesus to be a savior. He rescues us from one kingdom and puts us into another, as Colossians described it. And then here's how this all fits in with Isaiah, the quote that Matthew gives that's amazing. The idea is that Jesus is coming into the world to rescue us, and in that coming in, he is rescuing us and then will be present with us. God himself will be present with us as he transfers us from bondage and slavery into a new life. He will be present. Listen to these, probably the most important verses from the Old Testament from Isaiah 40, just a little farther along in Isaiah's book. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that now her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. And O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. This, friends, you may, may or may not have seen in that word the, the uh, get up on a high mountain, herald of good news. This is what the Bible calls the gospel. Both in Isaiah and in the New Testament, 
that God is returning to rescue his people from the bondage of, the sin, of our sins, both in the brokenness of the world and our own personal lives. And what Matthew is saying right here at the beginning is that God is returning to the world through Jesus to rescue and deliver us, and then he will be present with us as God himself, Emmanuel. And if you think about how the Gospel of Matthew ends, you may or may not know, it ends with Jesus commissioning his disciples, and what does he say? And I will be with you. The same idea, I will be with you until the end of the ages. So the first thing we learn about God is that he in Jesus is coming to rescue and be present with us. And I don't know a better word to describe that than mercy. Mercy. Mercy is when someone who is in a position of power and privilege maybe or just has more power than someone else sees someone else in need and comes to rescue them and help them. That's what mercy is. I think of my father-in-law who just died um, six weeks or eight weeks or so ago, and I just, just came to mind this morning as I was thinking about it, just little things like one time I got myself into a financial situation where I needed a short-term loan, and he rescued me. He delivered me. And I think of another time before I was even married to his daughter where I did not put enough gas in the car and ran out of gas, and he had to come and rescue me. Those are smaller versions, but you could think of something like much more serious, like being enslaved or oppressed and someone coming in and rescuing. That's mercy, where you see someone in need and come and deliver them. And God, who has all the power and position over us who are rebellious against him, both the whole world and then us individually, he chooses to show us mercy. To not give us what we deserve or just say, well, that's what you get, or something, but he sees our pitiful state. He sees our brokenness, our inconsistency, our, our, the death we experience, sadness and depression, and he chooses to enter into human flesh at his initiative, not ours, to rescue and save us from the consequences of the world's sin. Now, friends, listen to me. If you don't get anything else from this message... That's fine, but listen to what I'm about to say. You did not make yourself, and you cannot sustain your life, no matter how healthily you eat or anything. You and I cannot sustain our lives. Accident could happen, disease, and all of us are finite in our time of life. You do not make yourself. You, do not, you cannot sustain your own life. But the one who made you and sustains you looks upon you with mercy. He sees your failures in marriage. He sees your failures in money. He sees your failures in parenting. He sees the bondage and disappointments and depression and brokenness and rebellion. He sees your longings and your yearnings. He sees the confusion you have over what to do and what to make of your life. He sees the regrets you have and he initiates and says to you, mercy. I am coming into the world to rescue you from the things that were not your fault and the things that are your fault. It doesn't matter. Mercy is an action of rescuing us. And that is how the true God of the universe relates to his creation. 
So the first and most important thing we learn about this, this little story is that in Jesus, God is showing up with a ultimate mercy, rescuing us from our plight. But we can also ask, what does this story help us understand about ourselves? The, the Bible is mostly speaking about God, but it also invites us to come understand something about ourselves because when God rescues us, then he begins a process by the Holy Spirit of transforming us to be, to be in his image and made whole and made into his likeness. And the main way God does that is through helping us see in the stories of the Bible other people's lives and their experience of God because those invite us to imitate the God-like people, the good people that God is working in. And we have two human characters in our story, Mary and Joseph. Matthew tells us nothing about Mary. He leaves that to Luke. Luke focuses on Mary's experience and Mary's response. Matthew doesn't tell us that. Matthew instead focuses on a guy that we don't hear a lot about. In fact, he kind of disappears after this story for the most part, and that is Joseph. I was talking to somebody between the services. He pointed out that in, in kids' stories, a lot of times nowadays or videos about this, Joseph is sometimes, it's kind of the Disney effect, right? That parents are like bumbling idiots in all Disney movies. You ever noticed that, right? I like Disney, but that's like one of these things. The parents are always, and a lot of times Joseph is kind of like, maybe he's pictures this like clueless guy that doesn't know what's going on or something. We don't know much about him, but the Bible actually says something really clear right here in this story about Joseph, something remarkable. And it's in verse 19. And think back to the question I asked you at the beginning, what does it mean to be righteous? Joseph is described as a righteous or just man, the first person in the New Testament, and really there aren't that many people in the New Testament described as being righteous, the kind of person who does the will of God from the heart, the kind of person that God looks upon and says, not that he's perfect or free from sin, only Jesus is free from sin, but that he's righteous in the sense that he's aligned with me and he, he loves me and he seeks to do my will. That's what God says about Joseph. And here's the question, the amazing thing. What does God think righteousness looks like? What do you think righteousness looks like? We know what the Pharisees thought righteousness looks like, and it's pretty much what we think it looks like too. Someone who's holy and pure and always does what's right. But what does God think righteousness looks like? What's the logic in this story that is found in verse 19? Well, this is amazing, but I hope you'll see it now. Some of your translations do a better job than others. The idea is this, being a righteous person, Joseph decided to show mercy. You see, Joseph's righteousness is incarnated and explained in this story as his righteousness looks like that he is merciful and compassionate in his attitude and his actions against his apparently unfaithful fiance. Joseph is righteous in the way that Jesus will later go on, the adult Jesus will define righteousness, the highest virtue of compassionate love towards others, especially those who are in a mess. 
Rather than dragging Mary before the village and demanding his own rights and shaming her and stoning her all in the name of justice, the wrongly treated Joseph shows up as a righteous man, not emphasizing justice, but emphasizing mercy. He desires to, he's going to let her go away privately. He's not going to shame her so that she can be spared of that shame. That is what God says is Joseph's righteousness. And some decades later, again, the adult Jesus, his adopted son, will speak about this many times. He's going to say in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the what? Merciful. Those who show mercy to others. When Jesus has conflicts with the Pharisees in a couple situations because he's healing people and blessing people in ways that they don't think is just, like on the Sabbath, for example, and you, you dare heal a lame man on the Sabbath, what does Jesus say to them? He quotes Hosea 6.6 and says, God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Joseph is here in this story, friends, to help us see what it is to be righteous is to be full of mercy. And when you pull on this thread, we're going to see it all throughout Matthew. This is a constant refrain that righteousness looks like mercy, compassion, love, and forgiveness of others, especially those who are in desperate need. And now, can you begin to see how both what it's saying about God and what it's saying about us all fits together? These are not just an accident. They're not separate. They are organically, intentionally related together. God is merciful in seeing our plight and coming in and rescuing us from bondage. And then Joseph, a one who is righteous like God, sees someone who's in a plight and rescues her by putting her away without shaming her. And so then should we be. That's the logic of the Bible. As God is, he invites us to be, and we see characters in the story acting like God does and invites us to do the same. As God is shown to be merciful and coming and being present and forgiving and rescuing us from our sinful and desperate situation, so too does Joseph do the same thing toward Mary, and so too should you and I. And this righteousness, if you think you're a righteous, holy person, then you and I need to focus on being people of mercy. And this means helping people with compassion in need, even if you think they deserve it right? Even if they are your enemy, even if you are from a different class or race or educational level or culture or ethnicity, and all these things, I can't help but think of Jesus' teaching about the Good Samaritan. Do you remember? That it is the person who shows mercy and helps the other that is right with God. And this emphasis on mercy is both beautiful and and very hard to do. It's very hard because we have in us this deep-seated sense of justice that God has given us, and, and God is a justice. Justice does matter, and that's built into the creation in a good way. There is justice, and so it's good and right from God that we feel this, and sometimes mercy can feel like it's the opposite of justice. People not getting what they deserve, but being helped instead, even if it's their own fault. Something in us, you know, something good in us about justice you know, box at that. But if you think about it, we all love justice 
when it applies to other people. But when we're in a mess, either a mess that we didn't have anything to do with or a mess that was a function of our own mistakes or probably some combination most of the time, we're not crying out for justice then. What do we cry out for? Mercy. And what Jesus is saying here, all throughout we're going to see, is that when someone has wronged us or when we're in some situation where we want justice in the form of vengeance or we just need, uh, we, we need mercy desperately, God is showing up and saying, this is how I am. I am merciful towards those who have themselves in a mess either by their own doing or not their own doing. And the result is then, the, the, the call to us is love your neighbor as yourself and treat others as you'd want to be treated. And what are those things? Mercy. You see, there is something greater than justice. There is a virtue that is more beautiful and more profound than justice, a wisdom that is deeper, and that's mercy. I'm sure Joseph felt the need for mercy, I'm sorry, for justice and vengeance. We do as well. So does God. But there is a greater virtue, and that is mercy. When I think of a kind of a modern example of this, relatively modern example of mercy and its power, I always think of the bishop or priest from the beginning of Les Mis, Bishop Muriel. If you've seen the musical or the movie, you know who I'm talking about. If not, I can easily explain it. When the main character, Jean Valjean, is gotten out of prison, he's desperate, he's starving, he has nothing, no hope for the future. He stumbles into this village and Bishop Mirio welcomes him into his home and feeds him and gives him a place to sleep. And then that night when everyone goes to sleep, Valjean opens the cabinets and sees this just wealth of silver goblets and silverware and all these things. So he steals it and sneaks off in the night. Well, later the police find Valjean and they beat him and they drag him back to the bishop's house and they throw him on the ground in front of the bishop and say, we've caught the thief. This is your silver, right? We recognized it. And what does the bishop do? And the just thing, justice would have been to say, absolutely, throw him back into prison. What does he do? He says, yes, I give this to him and I've given this to him. And Valjean, you forgot the most valuable thing, the candlesticks. You forgot those. Come, let me put those in your bag as well. Release this man. And he shows this amazing mercy to him. And if you've seen the musical version, the bishop then sings these lines to Valjean, and I will try to resist singing them. Uh, they're so powerful. He says, but remember this, my brother. You see in this, this mercy, some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man, right? <laughs> by the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. What a picture of mercy. Seeing someone in need, maybe partly or largely because of their own stupid choices, and compassionately blessing that person. That's the virtue that is greater and more beautiful than justice. And if you just kind of trace out the lay Mills story, it's true of our lives as well. What does that mercy do for, for him? It transforms him and he becomes 
a merciful person towards others, like Cosette and all these other, and, and just he uses that and he blesses people and rescues people. This is a small human picture of the great reality of God in Christ. He comes into the world, rescues us, saves us, teaches us then to be like him, to show mercy, and then we become agents of his mercy in the world, like him, experiencing the blessings and beauty of that. It's so beautiful. Now, as I wrap this up, I, I do need to make just one really important qualification. Hear me clearly. I'm not by all this saying that justice is wrong or that laws and rights don't matter. Laws do matter. God is a God of justice. We need order in society, and there are things that must be punished. I'm, I'm definitely not saying that there's no place for justice, and I'm especially saying maybe for some of you women here, if you have been or are in a, an abusive situation, that's not a call for mercy, right? There's, you need to flee from that and come, and we will help you. We want to help you. There are times and places where justice is what is the most important. But what I am saying is that in most of our life situations, most of them, and then ultimately beyond all of our life situations, there is something more powerful and more beautiful than all of it, and it is how God is towards the world, and that is merciful. So as we come to the Lord's table, as we do each week, I want to remind you and help you think about this table as a table of mercy, where God, in Jesus' own action, says that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this, this is, represents my body that is broken and in this, friends, I want to invite you to think about God today as merciful towards you. And again, all your brokenness, all your situation today, depressed or joyful, or apathetic, sad, wherever you are, God sees you. And the picture of Jesus' broken body is one of mercy, that he looks upon you with kindness and mercy. And then Jesus took the, the cup and he said, this blood represents my, this wine represents my blood that is spilled for you and washes over you. And I, and I want you to think about that, friends, today as you think about relationships with others who maybe need mercy from you. I can think of some situations in my life where my justice radar is really clear and strong and my mercy isn't much there. Can you think of some situations like that for you? Maybe that's right in some cases, but in most cases, I think God's inviting us towards the beauty of mercy. And so some of you today need a message that God looks upon you with mercy. Some of you today need a message that you need to look upon some other people with mercy. And a lot of us need both of that today. And I think this table of mercy pictures these things, both the, the, the sacrifice that God has made for us and the unity and love we can have together as we share this communion at the table. So I'm going to pray, and the musicians are going to come forward, and then if you're new here or haven't been here, how we do this is as you desire and as your row comes forward. If you want to, there's no pressure, no obligation, but if you want to come forward, if you are a believer, and this is meaningful to you as a Christian believer, come forward Partake of this table of mercy. If you're not a Christian today, we are so glad you're here. This is not for you. 
This is a, this is a, a declaration of one's faith. We'd love to talk with you afterwards and help explain that more. But if you're a believer, come forward and take of this table of mercy, reminding yourself of God's mercy and our mercy towards others. Let me pray for us.